Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. It is basic to say that Halloween has long been the favorite holiday of trans people. With its relaxed social rules around clothing, makeup, and gender, many trans people have used its plausible deniability to take cautious first steps out into public. And of course, in the popular imagination, trans people are deeply linked to monsters and the horror genre, our skewing of gendered expectations so deeply unsettling to cis straight people that dozens of films, from Psycho to Sleepaway Camp, dressed to kill to insidious, use our bodies as the ultimate revelation of terror. This association is felt most painfully when cis people attempt to pass anti-trans bathroom bills by claiming we're all predators. But for several decades now, trans people have reclaimed these slurs against us. Yes, we are witches, we are werewolves, we are vampires, and we are Frankenstein's monster. In her canonical performance essay, My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Chamonix, trans historian Susan Stryker writes, Like the monster, I am too often perceived as less than fully human due to the means of my embodiment. Like the monsters as well, my exclusion from human community fuels a deep and abiding rage in me that I, like the monster, direct against the conditions in which I must struggle to exist. She goes on to write, When such beings as these tell me I war with nature, I find no more reason to mourn my opposition to them, or to the order they claim to represent, than Frankenstein's monster felt in its enmity to the human race. I do not fall from the grace of their company. I roar gleefully away from it like a Harley-straddling, dildo-packing leather dyke from hell. We may well be monsters to some but there can be something liberating in our monstrousness. Halloween is also the time associated across Western cultures with spirits of the dead, with ancestors, with all manner of psychic phenomena. And though I do try to keep this podcast specific to Western culture and only the contemporary historical period, It's difficult to ignore the ways that gender non-conforming people have and continue to have roles directly related to the spirit realm across most of the world and throughout human history. Even here in England, some 1,600 years ago, priests of the Phrygian goddess Kybele would castrate themselves during their initiation rites and then live and dress as women. One such ancient trans priestess was found buried in Catterick in Yorkshire just a few years ago but that's a story for another time. This special episode, just in time for All Hallows' Eve, tells the all-too-brief but curious tale of a ghost, a vicar, and a veil that was indeed all-too-thin. So sit back and listen as OFTV tells the story of the ghost of Curry Revel. (laughs) Now you've heard of the purple people leader And they sing of the witch doctor too I guess these songs have sold a million copies 
Well, I got one to sell a million to. <laughs> The 1920s were a very strange time indeed for the British. The brutality of the First World War had left the country traumatized as they reeled from the loss of so many young men in the trenches. Suddenly, a generation of young women were widows before their time, and parents grieved the loss of their children who'd only barely reached adulthood. This period of mourning met up with a deep and controversial cultural shift around sexual morals and gender roles. White women were getting the vote in country after country, some even daring to flout anti-cross-dressing laws by wearing pants in public. It's no surprise then that Victorian spiritualism, with its emphasis on contacting dead loved ones and its links to the early feminist movements, experienced a sudden revival. Seances became all the rage, both among heartbroken families looking for news of their lost sons and amongst the new flapper set who enjoyed any excuse to be thrilled and chilled. As Britain tried to peek beyond the veil, in 1923 residents of a small village called Curry Revel near Taunton, Somerset, got more of a glimpse than they'd bargained for. Whispers started to rise across the village that on some bleak nights a strange woman in a lace veil could be seen wandering the streets alone. As sightings slowly increased, all manner of superstition arose around this veiled woman. If she were spotted three nights in a row, someone was sure to die soon. Children should be good, lest the veiled woman snatch them away in the dead of night. For four years, her reign of quiet terror presided over the tiny village. Men traded tales of chilling encounters, each more elaborate than the last, on slow nights at the local pub. One such night in 1927 was different. Earlier that day, while making his usual rounds, postman Mr. E.C. Pittman spotted the strange woman during the day. With no darkness to hide in, he even managed to get a clear look at her face. To his surprise, he recognized her immediately. Word raced through the village. It seemed incredible, too hard to believe. Not only was the ghost made of flesh and blood, but, no, it was, it was almost too awful to say out loud. How could anyone accuse such a fine, upstanding member of the community like this? By nightfall, everyone was talking. A man named Frank Chorley made his way up Burton Road, and to his shock came upon this strange, veiled lady. He went to the King William Inn, a local pub, and overheard men gossiping with the landlord, Mr. William Weaver, about the postman's claim. Why, he'd just seen her out on the road. Making haste, the men rushed behind Frank to their bicycles and began to search for the veiled lady just after ten o'clock. By eleven, they'd found her. Here's how it was described in the Western Morning News of September 19th, 1927. They came upon her near Stony Lane, where Mr. Weaver made a grab at the person, catching hold by the wrist to prevent escape while Mr. Chorley shone his bicycle lamp into her face. 
Mr. Weaver, in describing the scene in an interview, says he did not then know Mr. Reed the Masquerader, but Mr. Woodrow, a leading member of Curry Revelle Congregational Chapel, who had followed, came up and immediately identified him. The elderly Alfred Harold Reed refused to speak at first, but finally admitted his name. He had, after all, been caught red-handed in what was described as a tight-fitting black hat and veil, dress worn beneath a red Macintosh, white stockings, and black patent shoes with high heels. Not only did the ghost lady appear to be a very much living man, he was the local vicar of the curry Revale Congregational Chapel, no less. According to the Western Morning News, quote, The minister concerned, Reverend Alfred Harold Reed, who has been at curry Revelle since 1923, prior to which he was at St. Ives, is an elderly man with a good record of service in the congregational ministry. At curry Revelle, he lived with his wife in the new manse attached to the chapel, towards the building of which he had helped to raise the necessary funds. His wife has recently been away for a few weeks, but has now returned home. It goes on to quote Mr. Weaver, The next morning, when going to the post office, I met Mr. Reed, who told me he did not think he had done any harm in masquerading as a woman. No one, not even his wife, he remarked, knew anything about it. He had heard that many girls and young women got into trouble or got molested, and he had posed as a lady to see if that were true. The vicar offered up several different explanations over the next couple of days. At first, he claimed to have been trying to gain material for a novel. Then he switched to claiming he'd been trying to suss out the morality of the men of his congregation, like some kind of patriarchy mystery shopper. I go out walking after midnight Out in the moonlight Just like we used to do I'm always walking This story seemed to work well enough for the vicar. Not content to let people gossip about him, though, the vicar decided to address the rumors of his cross-dressing in a very odd way. The Western Morning News writes, the discovery of his identity as the masquerader was promptly followed by Mr. Reed issuing by handbill an invitation to the public to attend meetings at Drayton and Curry Revell to hear his explanation. The handbill was headed Talks by the Masquerader and invited attendance at separate meetings for men and women to which boys and girls under 16 would not be admitted. The Drayton meetings were held as advertised in the village hall, but those arranged for the subsequent evening to take place in Curry Revelle Chapel were cancelled. Mr. Reed had himself communicated with the Somerset Congregational Union authorities and suggested an inquiry into his action if deemed advisable. A Taunton member of the County Union Committee, before whom the matter has come, stated on Saturday that the Curry Revelle meetings would not have been held in the chapel in any case. It seems that the meetings at Drayton did not go as smoothly as the poor vicar had planned. He cancelled the subsequent meeting in Curry Revelle, citing ill health, as the Western Morning News goes on to say. 
As it transpired, Mr. Reed was found too unwell after his Drayton meetings to proceed any further with meetings or services, and he has been ordered complete rest by his doctor. He was therefore unable to take part in the Harvest Festival services at the Curry Revell Chapel yesterday. His place was taken by former minister, the Reverend H. Kirkpatrick of Shaftesbury. At his Drayton meetings, where the same resentment was shown in the form of interruptions and comments, Mr. Reed stated that he had become depressed at the apparent degeneration of modern morals and manners, and he resolved, without consulting anyone, to make a personal investigation, in the guise of a woman, in his own locality, also at seaside towns, and elsewhere. It was my intention, he said, to discover what was the attitude of the ordinary man to the ordinary woman going alone on country roads rather late at night, making no advances, a woman who became absolutely silent when any sort of advance or familiarity was made to her by a man. To my surprise and intense satisfaction, though I walked on many miles on various occasions, there was not one who became at all troublesome to me. Some will say it was because I was no engaging female. My only reply to that is that not a few opportunities would have opened out if I had given any sign. After having proved again and again all the local districts, as far as I could, that men are far more chivalrous to women than I had imagined, I resolved to confirm and establish my convictions by visiting other populous areas. My experience was just the same, with one exception, at a place some distance away, where I sat on the seafront and suddenly felt a man leering at me. It was a terrible feeling, and I quickly moved away. Men, I raise my hat to you, declared Mr. Reed. I can truly say that you never had as high a place in my esteem as now. The lurid press that gives so much space in their columns to sensation are not fair to you. The heart of English manhood seems sound as ever. I have confirmed by these experiences your loyalty to the instinct of manhood, your genuine chivalry towards women, and your high respect for those who are most inaptly described as the weaker sex. Now that this strange and perhaps foolish jaunt of mine is over, I have apologized to everyone, and I trust that they will all be ready to forgive me the spasm of folly." A later 1933 article in the Tampa Tribune in Florida claimed that several weeks of investigation followed, resulting in a severe reprimand from the Somerset Congregational Union, after which he promised to end his unusual methods of moral policing and stick only to preaching. Intriguingly, the curry Revelle Congregational Church released this statement seemingly in his defense— we do hereby place on record our unqualified conviction that such behavior was not due to any moral laxity, but is the result of a nervous disorder induced by anxiety and overwork. Further, we record our gratitude to God for our pastor's long and arduous ministry and affirm that our church has been most happy and successful during his four years as our leader. We have found him a helpful preacher and devoted friend and pastor, recklessly spending his strength in bringing the church through great difficulties to a place of honor in the community and the union. However, on November 29, 1927, the vicar handed in his resignation. It's unclear whether he was forced to resign or whether it was his own decision. Maybe a bit of both. 
He is still remembered fondly by the church community, however, due to his efforts raising 1,000 guineas, which Zagria calculates to be about 65,000 pounds in today's money for repairs and improvements to the church. One recent academic commentator on the small scandal speculates that many tales of women in black, a ghost story and occasional panic found throughout England in the 19th and early 20th centuries, may in fact be stories of what he refers to as transvestites. As evidence, he cites that many newspaper reports describe these apparitions as unusually tall. Cross-dressing in public was illegal during this period, making it a practice one could only contain in secret. But, as he points out, most working-class men did not have the space and privacy to conduct their cross-dressing without wives or other family members noticing. He further states that mourning clothes were particularly easy to get a hold of, as they were not frequently worn, so a wife would be unlikely to notice them missing, and the posture of a widow would make people in the street less likely to look close or to bother them, as Victorians had very strong ideas about how mourners should be treated. While this is certainly a convincing argument, it seems to stretch credulity to suggest cross-dressing was behind the majority of women in black panics. As for what became of our fair vicar, sadly, this is lost to time. But perhaps on some lonely road in Somerset, she's still out there, testing the good morals of men. Happy Halloween. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also tweet at me, at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. And OFTV has its own Twitter, at OFTV Podcast. We also have a Patreon, where we do bonus mini-episodes once a month. Patreon.com slash OFTV. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included and his son. The scene was rocky, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It caught on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster match. Out from his coffin, Rack's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the match. It's now the monster match. The monster match. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the match. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the match. It's now the monster match. Now 
cool Drax a part of the band And my monster mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what is said Then you can mash Then you can monster mash The monster mash And do my graveyard smash Then you can mash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can mash Then you can monster mash Monster mash, monster mash. Monster mash. Monster mash. Monster mash. Monster mash. 